you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 49. We're nearing the end of our journey through Genesis. All right, yeah, it's getting close. We're going to be talking about a father's blessing today because that's what we see in this whole passage is, uh, is Jacob uh, in verses 1 to 28, blessing his sons. As we think about that, you know, he has these kind words to say. Some of them are difficult words, though, too, saying for his sons. But <clears throat> I think about this. This illustration, I think, helps us understand it. In the movie Toy Story 3, Andy, the owner of Woody, Buzz Lightyear, and other toys, is preparing to leave for college. At the end of the movie, he decides to give his toys to a young girl named Bonnie. The scene starts with Andy entering the front gate of Bonnie's home and showing her the box of toys. Andy tells her, I'm Andy. Someone told me you're really good with toys. These are mine, but I'm going away now, so I need someone really special to play with them. Then as Andy proceeds to hand the toys to Bonnie, he introduces them by saying something special about each one. He begins with his toy cowgirl, Jessie. This is Jessie, the roughest, toughest cowgirl in the whole West. She loves critters, but none more than her best pal, Bullseye. Andy then pulls Bonnie, or hands Bonnie his toy Tyrannosaurus Rex, the meanest, most terrifying dinosaur who, who ever lived. Now, if you know, if you've seen the Toy Story movies, he's not the meanest, most terrifying. He's very timid, right? For the potato heads, Andy says, the potato heads, Mr. and Mrs., you got to keep them together because they're madly in love. Slinky the dog is as loyal as any dog you could want. Andy blesses Ham, the pig, by saying, he'll keep your money safe, but he's also one of the most dastardly villains of all times, evil Dr. Porkchop. Buzz Lightyear is the, cool, or yeah, is the coolest toy ever. Look, he can fly and shoot lasers. He's sworn to protect the galaxy from the evil Emperor Zerg. Finally, for his pal Woody, Andy says, he's been my pal as long as I can remember. He's brave like a cowboy should be and kind and smart. But the thing that makes Woody special is he'll never give up on you, ever. He'll be there for you, no matter what. So, you know, Andy has all these incredible words for his toys that he's grown to love as he uh, bought them and then played with them for many, many years. And I think about the fact that, you know, we should have encouraging words, too. And for us, Judy and I try to encourage each other when we notice something the other person has done. And so we, we try to give words of encouragement. We've also tried to encourage our children and their spouses or girlfriend when they do something incredible or caring for others. We look for ways to encourage our grandchildren as they develop and grow. We look for ways to point out how our friends are being caring and thoughtful. We try to thank our friends for how they have supported and cared for us. And then as I think about the staff and volunteers here at Idaville Church, I strive to encourage them as I see them doing incredible things, as they serve so faithfully on a weekly basis. And so I want you to just contemplate for a moment this morning, whom do you need to encourage this week? Is it a family member, a spouse, a children, grandchildren, parents, siblings? Is it some friend or friends that you need to encourage with your words? Maybe it's someone from work 
someone that volunteers. I want you to be thinking about that this morning. Jacob is nearing death. He wants to have his sons together for one final family gathering. And this gathering was important because Jacob had some important words to share with his sons and about their futures. While some of his blessings seem like anti-blessings, they are important nonetheless. He has something to share about each son. And for some of his sons, he will reflect on their pasts and how that will affect their futures. And so from this passage of Scripture, we're going to learn today that our past can affect our future. And it can either be a positive or a negative. It can be, we can affect our future in a positive or a negative way, depending on what we did in the past. And it may affect more than just us, but it also may affect our descendants, as we're going to see in this passage today. And so as we think about that, would you just bow your heads with me this morning as we commit it to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we just come to you in humility today, needing to hear from you, Lord. I pray that as we study this passage of Scripture, that, that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. That, Lord God, your people would not hear my voice, but they would hear your voice today. And, Lord, I, just, I commit this passage to you now, your words to us. And whether you pray this in the quietness of your heart today or out loud, would you just pray together with me? Dear Lord, open my eyes and my heart and my mind to your word. Would you please transform me through your word today? In Jesus' name, amen. So in verses 1 and 2, we see Jacob's call. And so let's look at those verses together, if you, uh, if you would, with me this morning. This is what it says. Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father, Israel. So he has some important things that he's wanting them to pay attention to. Jacob wanted to share some final instructions with his sons as he prepared to die. And so... As we see in verse 1, Jacob looked beyond his present life and the lives of his sons to a time when their descendants were back in the promised land. This is going to be into the future, but what they've done at this point in time in their lives is going to affect that future. He was looking beyond the individual to the clan or tribe that they represented. As Walton says, it would not have been viewed as prediction as much as determination of individual and tribal destiny. And so we know uh, the content was important because Jacob told his sons twice in verse 2, listen, listen. He wants them to pay attention. I have something important that I want to share with you. And while it may not affect them personally, it would affect the generations to come. So Jacob blessed the six sons that he had with Leah first. That's the order in which he puts them in, but he doesn't keep them in birth order. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But So he starts in verses 3 through 15 with... Leah's children. Starts with Reuben. Let's look at verse, uh, verses 3 and 4. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up on, onto your father's bed, onto my couch, and defiled it. And so, 
he uh, talks to Reuben, and he gives, he gives him two points. He says, you have some privilege because of your being firstborn, but you also have some accountability for some things that you did. And so this privilege comes in the fact that as the firstborn son of Jacob, Reuben should have inherited a double portion. He should have been the priestly line and the kingly tribe. But he's going to lose all of that. Jacob had hopes and aspirations for Reuben. This was his first child, his first son. That held a lot of significance. He should have excelled in honor and power, but his moral failure caused him to forfeit those privileges. And so uh, Jacob says to him, this is your accountability. Reuben's attitude and actions were like turbulent waters. Now, water is very unstable, isn't it? Especially in its liquid form. Other than Jesus and Peter, kind of, no one else has walked on water. We can try, but what happens when we try to walk on water? We just sink, right? <laughs> We're like, let me step out of the boat. Well, that didn't work out so well. We can walk on the bottom of the lake. Anyhow. So it's very unstable, but turbulent water is a whole different animal, isn't it? When a levee or a dam breaks, the force of the rushing water causes great damage, doesn't it? When a, when a tsunami or a tidal wave reached land, the destruction that follows is devastating. So the power of water, even though it's unstable, can be very, very destructive. And so we kind of see that here with Reuben. Reuben's lust for power created a devastating sexual tsunami that affected generations into the future. After Jacob's wife, Rachel, died, Israel moved on to Migdal Adir. While he was living there, his son Reuben went in and slept with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaiden, and Jacob's concubine. And when he did this, it defiled his father's marriage bed. And perhaps Reuben thought that in doing so, he would somehow gain power or authority over his father and be the, like the next ruler of the, of the clan. But the opposite happened. He was stripped of his honor and power. When this incident happened uh, for, uh, earlier in Genesis, the narrator simply mentioned that Israel heard about it, but we're not told that he did anything about it. He just heard about it. And some 40 years later, Reuben is hearing about his consequences, about the consequences of his sin. The status of firstborn and the double portion went to Joseph and his sons Ephraim and Manasseh, as we heard a couple of weeks ago. The priestly duties were given to the tribe of Levi, and the royal or kingly honor went to the tribe of Judah. He lost it all. And so, as the footnote in the NIV application Bible says, sin's consequences can plague us long after the sin is committed. We're going to see a little bit more about that as we talk about uh, Simeon and Levi in just a moment. So Reuben's sin affected the status of his clan or tribe forever. It changed it forever. And so that takes us back to our big idea that our past can affect our future. It did for Reuben. And let's look at the first principle then, that our behavior affects the destiny of our descendants. Substance abuse can affect the destiny of our descendants because it can begin a long line of alcoholism or drug abuse. Now, of course, there's exceptions to the rule, right? 
In some cases, children will avoid those substances when they have been exposed to the consequences of them through their parents. They're like, I never want to go that, down that route. But that's rare. Most of the time, they follow in the footsteps of their parents. You know, children are watching and listening to us as parents. They're looking for clues concerning how they should behave and talk. If we use foul language, they're going to use foul language. If we mistreat other people, they're going to mistreat other people. If, they're abusive to their, if we are abusive to our spouse, they will be abusive to their spouse. If we prioritize other things above God, they will prioritize other things above God. But, of course, the opposite of all of these are true as well. If we use our speech to build others up, they're going to do the same thing. If we treat others with kindness and respect, they'll do the same thing. If we are loving and supportive of our spouse, they will be too. If we put our relationship with God first above everything else, they will also. But of course, there are cases when our children do not follow in our footsteps, whether good or bad. There's always exceptions to the rule. So as you heard in the uh, you know, in, in the overview of Proverbs this morning, these aren't like promises, right? These Proverbs don't mean that this is going to guarantee everything. Same is true here. Our behavior and speech can affect the destiny of our descendants. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. This is the second commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the heaven, or in the, I'm sorry, the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Do you see how what we say and what we do can affect the next generations? All of our descendants, third and fourth generation to a thousand generations. Maybe you're ready to take this next step today, our first one. It's on the back of your communication card, and that's to seek the Lord's help in behaving and speaking in a way that will um, honor God and benefit my descendants. You know, so often we think that the sin that we do that no one sees isn't going to affect anybody. It just affects me, right? No one's going to know about that. No. God does, number one, but I'm telling you it's going to affect your relationships. It's going to affect all everything. Because that starts to leak out. That sin, that's the unrepentance, it starts to leak out. And so perhaps Reuben thought he had gotten away with this little indiscretion, but that was not the case. His actions affected his descendants. And the same was true for Simeon and Levi. Here the narrator uh, puts these two together, and we're going to talk about why that is. Verses um, 6 to, yeah, 5 to 7, I'm sorry. This is what God's Word says. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, for they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. And so what we see with Simeon and Levi, this is the second and third children of Leah. They have this uncontrolled anger. While Reuben dealt with lust, Simeon and Levi dealt with anger and fury. When the narrator says that Simeon and Levi are brothers, he doesn't just mean biologically. We already know that. He means that they have an issue 
anger, and fury. So that's what he's talking about here when he's saying that they're brothers. The swords here, the meaning of the Hebrew word for swords is uncertain because this is the only place that is found in all of Scripture, the Hebrew word. It is a noun form from the verb to cut, which some uh, commentators uh, believe refers to circumcision, which would make sense since the narrator is probably referring to the slaughter of the Shechemites in retaliation of the rape of their sister, Dina. Simeon and Levi tricked the Shechemites into being circumcised, and when they were vulnerable, they went to Shechem and killed the inhabitants, all the men. So the knives used for circumcision would have been weapons of violence. And then Jacob says, I don't want to be around them. I don't want to seek their counsel. If you recall, Jacob wasn't pleased with Simeon and Levi's actions. Here we see that Jacob did not want to ask them for counsel. He probably didn't trust them anymore. And he also did not want to join their assembly. He wanted to separate himself from them. Now, when the incident occurred, Jacob was concerned that the Canaanites and Perizzites would join forces, attack them, and destroy them, as we see in Genesis chapter 34, verse 30. And the reason that he wanted to remain separate from them was because they had killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen just whenever they wanted to. They were just violent. And so he cursed their anger, that was so fierce. He cursed their fury that was so cruel. Their actions showed that they were controlled by anger and not controlled by the Lord. Their actions in the past affected their descendants also. The same is true for us. Our past can affect our future. We see the consequences here. Jacob shared that their descendants would be scattered and dispersed. Now, when we look at a map of the land that each of the 12 tribes inherited, we see that Simeon was absorbed into the land of Judah Right there in the yellow circle. <clears throat> so that's how his clan is scattered. And then notice that the tribe of Levi didn't have an, uh, any land that they inherited. Now, as the priestly tribe, the Levites were given 48 cities in the surrounding fields, dispersed throughout all of Israel. And so that's how they were dispersed. Their anti-blessing turns into a blessing when they are chosen as the priestly tribe. Now, Levi's tribe did some pretty incredible things where they just took the side of the Lord against the rest of the Israelites. And at least two uh, scenarios, they did that. So they were living into being this priestly tribe. Golden Gate says this, regarding Simeon and, and Levi, division and dispersal is as much preemptive as judgmental. It is designed to stop them from indulging further in their angry violence. In the event, Levi, as the ministerial clan, will have towns spread around the promised land. Simeon will be enclosed with Judah. This takes us back to our first principle that we already talked about. Our behavior affects the destiny of our descendants. It did for Simeon and Levi. <clears throat> but this, this idea of our behavior affects the destiny of our descendants also would be true of Judah, but on a positive note. Look at verses 8 to 12. Judah and Joseph are the two longest blessings that we see in this passage. Look at verses 8 to 12 for Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down, will bow down to you. You are a lion cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. 
and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to, a choice, to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. <clears throat> a lot of imagery here, <laughs> but let's unpack that a little bit. In verse 8, we see that uh, Judah is honored. As the ruling tribe, Judah will be praised by his brothers. And it won't just be the five brothers that were born to Leah, but all of Jacob's sons, all 12 tribes. And it was, um, uh, they will praise and bow down to the tribe of Judah because of their ability to subdue their enemies. That's the imagery of Judah having their hand on the neck of their enemies. It represents victory over their enemies. And we'll see the fulfillment of this blessing in King David and his ability to conquer his enemies. We realize that by the time King David is done and he's about ready to turn over uh, the kingship to his son Solomon, that they were at peace. And the reason that God would not allow David to build the temple is because he had blood on his hands. And he says, no, it'll be uh, given to your son who would be living at peace. And during the entire time of Solomon's reign, there was peace in the land. And so... We see this honor uh, that is due to Judah. We see strength in verse 9. The metaphor of a lion represents strength. The lion is the king of the jungle. And Hamilton says, What is pictured here is a lion that has grown into adulthood. Grown on prey is the equivalent of your hand is on the neck of your enemies in verse 8. The lion, having recently eaten, has retired to its sleeping quarters to digest its meal, even while it's reposing or sleeping, resting. Nothing else tries to invade its territory. So powerful is the lion. So, so it's talking about the lioness part there. Third thing we see under Judah is that they would be the ruling tribe in verse 10. This blessing was fulfilled again through King David. The Lord had promised David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. We see that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at the second half of verse 11 and through verse 16. This is what God's word says. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So we see this here, this ruling tribe. The blessing of the scepter and the ruler's staff remaining with the line of Judah uh, until he comes to whom it belongs perhaps is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. We know that the Messiah would come through the line of Judah. The Hebrew can also be read as until Shiloh comes or until he comes to whom tribute belongs. The obedience of the nations is his would seem to be referring to Jesus' eternal reign. All of this makes sense, especially when we look at Paul's writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. This is what we read. Therefore God exalted him, that's Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. So we're actually starting with verse 1. 
in Philippians chapter 2. That is Jesus' future, right? This is still to come. And so that scepter, that rod is going to come into Jesus' hand. He will rule forever. We also see prosperity in verses 11 and 12. Tethering a donkey to a vine, especially the choicest branch, a regular vineyard farmer would not do that because the donkey would just eat the, the grapes and the vines. He would just eat everything up. So that doesn't make sense, but for a prosperous ruler, he would have plenty of more vines and branches to harvest grapes from. So he's not so concerned about that. That just talks about prosperity. Washing your garments and robes in wine and the blood of grapes. Again, <clears throat> most of us aren't going to use wine as our wash water, right? We're not going to do that. But a wealthy, prosperous person or ruler would. The common person wouldn't waste wine by using it to quote-unquote clean their clothes. Depends on whether what, if you like the color purple, I guess. The dark eyes and the white teeth. Dark eyes would be referring to dull eyes as a result of drinking too much wine. Again, they're just imbibing. They're, they're, uh, it's in luxury. They have all of this that's available to them. Golden Gate says his country will flow with milk. Its uh, pasturage will be so good that there are countless sheep and thus rivers of milk. Kyle and Dillich go on and say the soil of Judah produced the best wine in Canaan near Hebron and then Gedi. <coughs> and had excellent pasture land in the desert by Tekoa and Carmel, Carmel to the south of Hebron. So, you know, Jacob is just giving this incredible blessing to Judah. Well, I want you to think for a minute about Judah's past, though. Judah had some problems in his past, too, didn't he? He's, he's the one who suggested that they sell Joseph into slavery, right? Thanks a lot. God's plan. He also withheld his youngest son from Tamar, his daughter-in-law, which caused her to trick him into providing offspring by sleeping with him. So why is Jacob not his blessing of Judah? What's the difference here? I believe it has to do with how he responded after sinning. There was a change in Judah when Jacob was hesitant to send Benjamin to Egypt. Jacob guaranteed his safety and said that he would be personally responsible in Genesis 43.9. In, verse, uh, in Genesis 42, 37, Reuben offered the life of his two sons, but not himself. If, if Benjamin doesn't come back, you can, have, you can have my two sons. But he wasn't willing to offer himself. There's the difference. The change continued when Joseph threatened to keep Benjamin in Egypt. Judah explained to Joseph that he had guaranteed Benjamin's life to his father. He says, if, if he doesn't return home... Um, my father's going to die. And, and Judah then offers his own life again to Joseph for Benjamin's life. He says, just keep me, but let Benjamin go home. The change perhaps began when Judah was confronted about his sin with Tamar. He had withheld his uh, third son from Tamar out of fear that he would die. And when he unknowingly sleeps with his daughter-in-law and is then confronted about breaking his promise to her, he responds with humility and repentance. We see that in Genesis 38, 26. This is what he says. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. So that brings us to our second principle this morning. God can use us for great things when we repent and seek forgiveness. See, our past does affect our future, but it doesn't have to be in a negative way. If we repent 
and seek forgiveness. God used Judah and his line as the kingly tribe through whom the Messiah would come. God recognized the change that had taken place in his life. God can and will use us even if even after all of our failures for his glory and purposes, but he requires that we repent of our sins and seek to live a life that's holy. That's what he requires of us. So a couple of questions for you today just to help you think. Do you want to be used by God for great things? If so, what do you need to stop doing and repent of? What do you need to ask the Lord to forgive you for? It's never too late to be used by God. It's never too late to repent and seek forgiveness. You have not done too many bad things to not be used by God. You just need to turn and repent. That's our second step today. Maybe you're ready to take that step today. It's to repent of my sins and seek the Lord's forgiveness so he can use me for great things. You see, our past can affect our future. Our present can affect our future, too. Jacob switches the order of uh, his next two sons by Leah by addressing Zebulun first before Issachar. Zebulun is the sixth and final um, son to Leah. But look at verse 13 with me, if you would. Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend towards Sidon. Now, I want you to look at the map this morning. If you notice, the yellow circle, that's Zebulun. He is landlocked. He's not by the seashore. So what's going on here? They were not on the Mediterranean Sea or the Sea of Galilee. But as Waltke points out, the Hebrew preposition for by, by the sea, means with reference to or even near. So they're definitely near the Sea of both of those. They're kind of halfway between. Wearsby goes on and says this, Zebulun was located on an important route that carried merchandise from the coast to the Sea of Galilee and to Damascus. So they're on this trade route. So they're helping out all those merchants that are by the seashore. The fifth son, in verses 14 and 15, is Issachar. Look at those verses together with me. Issachar is a raw-boned donkey, which means a strong donkey, lying down between two saddlebags. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, uh, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. So when we look at Issachar, Jacob recognized the strength and hard work uh, of this tribe. Lying down between two saddlebags is probably referring uh, to where the tribe of Issachar would settle in the promised land. So we have to go back to um, our map again, and you see where Issachar is at. They lived in the valley of Jezreel that was between uh, two mountain ranges, Mount Tabor and Mount Gilboa. So that's kind of the imagery of the saddlebags. They're in, in this valley, and it's a rich valley. Um, Kyle and Dillich just point this out. Ease at the cost of liberty will be the characteristic of the tribe of Issachar. The simile of a bony or strong-built ass, particularly adapted for carrying burdens, pointed to the fact that this tribe would content itself with uh, natural good, devote itself to the labor and burden of agriculture, and not strive after political power and rule. We also know that uh, Issachar, um, they, this tribe was not able to... Uh, to rid themselves of all the Canaanites. So they came under, um, you know, the servitude uh, to the Canaanites. Jacob then turns to his sons born to Bilhah and Zilpah. 
And we see that in verses 16 to 21. There's a little chiastic structure here in that Jacob started with Bilhah's first son, Dan, then blessed Zilpah's two sons, Gad and Asher, before returning to Bilhah's second son, Naphtali. And so look at verses 16 and 17, <clears throat> and this is Dan. Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent by the roadside, a viper along, uh, uh, yeah, along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. <clears throat> and so what we see here with Dan is a couple of things. The name Dan means to judge. Isn't that interesting? To judge, that's what his role is going to be as a tribe. The only biblical account of a judge coming from the tribe of Dan is Samson. He was a pretty amazing judge, right? Well, most of the time. <laughs> Perhaps the tribe of Dan provided justice in other ways. Walk, he says, through small, though small, Dan will be aggressive, dangerous, and strike unexpectedly to overthrow nations, as Judges 18 shows. And Samson from this tribe single-handedly wounds the Philistines, as we see in Judges chapters 14 to 16. So Dan's attack, providing justice, will be stealthy. He's not big enough to go head on with, uh, with, with these enemies. Then we see Gad, which is Zilpah's first, in verse 19. Gad will be attacked by, the ba by a band of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. So again, Gad settled on the eastern side of the Jordan River with Reuben <coughs> and the half-tribe of Manasseh, if you remember that, and the map will show that as well. They were along the King's Highway, which was a major trade route that went north to south uh, through the territory of Gad. So Gad is, it's not where the circle is. Gad's the kind of dark greenish or brown or whatever, gray color on the eastern side. That way for you all. Um, so anyhow, because of their location, they experienced attacks from bands of raiders wanting to obtain the items that were being traded along that trade route. And the attacks came from the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Arameans, and the Assyrians. And since they were a small tribe, they were not able to advance against their enemies head-on, just like Dan, but would attack from the rear. Hamilton says mobility rather than number is Gad's major asset. Then we see Zilpah's second son, Asher, in verse 20. Asher's food will be rich. He will provide delicacies fit for a king. As the map shows, Asher's inheritance was along the Mediterranean Sea on the western slopes of the Galilean highlands. The land was incredibly rich and fertile and provided wheat and oil abundantly. And during King Solomon's reign, he provided wheat and olive oil for King Hiram, who was providing all that uh, wood. Then we see Bilhah's second, uh, Naphtali, in verse 21. He is a doe set free that bears fruitful or beautiful fawns. There's all kinds of stuff going on here um, with this one. The territory that Naphtali inherited was rugged, isolated, and fertile, just northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps the rugged, isolated land would require this tribe to uh, be like a hind or a gazelle that is swift and skillful in its movements. And then this producing beautiful fawns also has the, the idea of being able to speak beautiful words. And so Wearsby says, possessing the abilities to run like does and speak beautiful words, the people of Naphtali would make ideal messengers. And then I want us to jump back to verse 18. I skipped over that one. Because you have this little part that says, I look for your deliverance, O Lord. That's Jacob speaking. Jacob looks to the Lord for this deliverance. As he's blessing his sons, he knows that some of them will be going through 
what they will be going through in the future. It's not going to be easy. And the statement suggests that Jacob was in communication with the Lord while he's speaking to his sons, as Wearsby points out. So how many of us would agree today that we need the deliverance of the Lord for ourselves or for some of our family members? We can cry out to the Lord just like Jacob and declare, Lord, I look to you for deliverance. Just in the quietness of your heart, would you do that today if that's what you need? Just cry out to him and say, Lord, I look to you for deliverance. Finally, Jacob blesses Rachel's children. We see in verses 22 to 27, she, or he starts with Joseph, Rachel's firstborn. Look at verses 22 to 26. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arm stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel, because of your father's God who helps you, because of the almighty who blesses you with blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breast and womb, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the uh, the ancient mountains than the bounty of the aged old uh, hills let all these rest on the head of joseph on the brow of the prince among his brothers so we see several things here first we see in verse 22 just prosperity joseph's name means may he add while his son ephraim's name means twice fruitful that's where this blessing's coming from Joseph's clan through Ephraim and Manasseh would be fruitful. When I think of the metaphor used here of a fruitful vine and branch that climbs over a wall, I'm reminded of the kudzu that I saw in Alabama when I lived there. It would grow so quickly and so plentifully, you couldn't keep up with it, and it just covered everything. That's what I see, this prosperity of Joseph through Ephraim and Manasseh. In verses 23 and 24, we see this protection. The arrows are an image in Scripture of telling lies and using hateful words towards someone else. We know that Joseph's brothers could not say a kind word about him. They didn't even want to talk to him. His brothers also lied to their father about him. Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph's actions, which got him thrown into prison. And so Joseph's bow remained steady and his strong arm stayed limber through all those attacks. He was able to remain steady and strong under these attacks and lies because he put his trust in the Lord. He did not blame his brothers for what happened to him, but recognized that God allowed it to happen for his purposes. He did not let imprisonment stop him from working hard and doing his best for the Lord. He just kept moving forward. And we see that God was with him. God's mighty hand was with Joseph, caring for him like a shepherd and providing stability for him while everything around him was crumbling. And so our third principle today is this, that God is the one who strengthens us, cares for us, and provides stability for us when we're being attacked. That's who we need to turn to when hard times are coming, when we don't understand what's going on physically in our bodies, when we don't understand what's going on in our family with relationships, when we don't understand why our employer uh, let us go, when we're dealing with financial struggles, when Satan is attacking us, and when our own mind just plays havoc, wreaks havoc on us. We just need to turn to the Lord. Do you feel like everything is crumbling around you? As a child of God and followers of Jesus Christ, we can be confident that he is there to strengthen us, to care for us, 
and provide stability as we face the attacks that come our way. He promises to never leave us or forsake us so we can say with confidence that the Lord is our helper. We see that in Hebrews chapter 13. So take a moment to express to the Lord the attacks that you are experiencing right now. And then take this third next step to trust in God's strength, care, and stability for me as I experience attacks in my life. That's the only way that Joseph was able to survive all that, went through, all that he went through. And with God's help, Joseph also experienced blessings. We see that in verses 25 and 26. We see the fertility of land that's promised for him. Joseph's land would experience fertility from rain above and fountains and streams of water from below. When, he left, uh, when we left for national conference, our tomato plants were still just kind of small and scraggly. Uh, but when we got home, they were huge and bushy. I was trying to train them to go in the, you know, the frames. Uh, anyhow, I guess you guys got some rain while we were gone. <laughs> Those things just took off in one week. I was like, wow. Joseph also experienced the fertility of body. Joseph's family would be blessed with children. Joseph's animals would be blessed with offspring. And then we see this greater blessing. Jacob's blessing on Joseph is greater than the blessing received by Abraham and Isaac. Jacob's hope is that this blessing will rest on Joseph's head. And Joseph was certainly a prince that was separated from his brothers, perhaps a better translation than among his brothers. Joseph's descendants would experience prosperity, protection, and blessing because of how he handled the attacks in his life. And so his past affected his descendants' future. And the same is true of us. How we handle the attacks in our lives affect our future. Jacob has one final blessing for his youngest son, Benjamin. Look at verse 27. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. In the evening, he divides the plunder. So the reference to morning and evening means that Benjamin was continually on the prowl, just all the time. In battle, this tribe was continually victorious and shared the booty that they had obtained. The descendants of Benjamin that fulfilled this blessing we see in Judges 3, 15 to 30, which is Ehud the judge. Saul, the first king of Israel, comes out of this tribe. Jonathan, his son, those guys were both pretty good in battle. Abner, Shiva, Shimea, and then Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul, who ruthlessly pursued Christians to imprison them. Boy, can you see that? imagery like a woof that's how paul was going or saul was going after christians at that time as this section of scripture ends the narrator provides this conclusion in verse 28 all these are the 12 tribes of israel and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them giving each the blessing appropriate to him so the narrator narrator makes three points as matthews points out all of jacob's sons were recognized none were excluded the blessings had the authority of their father, Jacob, and each blessing was appropriate for each tribe and their part in the nation of Israel. Jacob has one final request of his sons before he dies, which we'll see next week. So as we review, let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you ready to seek the Lord's help in behaving and speaking in a way that will honor him and benefit your descendants? Are you ready to repent of your sins and seek the Lord's forgiveness so he can use you for great things? Are you ready to trust in God's strength, care, and stability for you as you experience attacks in life? 
you know, as a body of believers, we can seek the Lord's help in behaving and speaking in a way that will honor Him and benefit those who come after us. We need to repent of our sins and seek the Lord's forgiveness so that He can use us for great things in our community. And we can trust God's strength, care, and stability for us as we experience attacks as a body of believers. I want to share this illustration with you as we close in this morning. Business researchers call it the missing ingredient or the hidden accelerator. Most managers can, could transform their workplaces with this missing ingredient, showing appreciation, using kind words. That's the focus of the recent book entitled The Carrot Principle by Adrian Gostick and Chester Elton. Based on a 10-year study that interviewed 200,000 people, Gostick and Elton conclude that appreciation tops the list of things employees say they want from their bosses. Some of the statistics uh, to back this claim up include, of the people who report high morale at work, 94.4% agree that their managers show appreciation. 79% of employees who quit their jobs cite a lack of appreciation as, a, as the key reason for leaving. And 56% of employees who report low morale also give their managers low marks for showing appreciation. Of course, these statistics tap into the fundamental need in all of our relationships, the need to give and receive affirmation and blessing. The authors of the carrot principle conclude, the simple act of a leader or a spouse, parent, coach, mentor, or friend expressing appreciation to a person in a meaningful way is the missing accelerator that can do so much but is used so sparingly. So just like Jacob did with his sons, I encourage you to think about how can I use this accelerator with my family, my friends, my coworkers, my church family as well. And uh, we can just pass on these blessings to others. So as the worship team prepares uh, to lead us in a closing song, as the ushers come to take up the tithes and offerings and the communication cards, would you stand with me and just bow your heads? Lord, we are grateful for your word. Thank you for... Um, just what we learned through it today, that you um, uh, just bless us, Lord God, as we are repentant, as we confess our sins to you. Lord, I pray that you would just uh, work in each heart and mind today as they think about and process what you are saying to them. And Lord, I pray that they would be obedient to you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you sing?